welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I hope you're all healthy and doing well. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. My name is Kate Hurley, and I'm a client advisor in our North America institutional business here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I'm pleased to introduce my colleague, John Bilton, Head of Global Multi-Asset Strategy for the Multi-Asset Solutions Team. Over the next 60 minutes or so, we'll have a discussion about the recent updates to our long-term capital market assumptions in response to the current market volatility onset by COVID-19. So, John, thanks so much for joining us today. I find it so interesting that this is the first time in nearly a quarter century of producing our long-term capital market assumptions that we have elected to provide an update outside of our normal annual publication cycle. Can you speak to this, and what were the key findings as a result of the changes? Yeah, thanks, Kate, and thanks to everyone who's joined in. Kate, you're right. We've been doing this for 25 years now, and it's my privilege to be the chair of the team that puts this together. And this is the first time we've ever elected to do an off-cycle update to our numbers, and we've done it for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, because we now have the technological setup to enable us to do it. We update these numbers once a year for 216 asset classes in 16 different currencies with a full workup across all of the major economic blocks around the globe. And it forms the backbone to the strategic asset allocation framework we use within the solutions business. And the reason why it's so important for us to look to do a mark-to-market at the moment is because... It has been such a significant move. And with the technology framework we've built to support this program now, we're able to update for the major currencies, so for US dollars, for euros, and we've also done sterling, across a number of frequently traded markets. The reason for doing this is, A, this is the first time, mercifully, in more than 10 years that we've actually seen a turn in the business cycle. And as a result, having a program where we're able to check in after a significant market move is incredibly important. Secondly, however, it's worth noting that one of the issues that followed the aftermath of the 2008-2009 crisis was that the market collectively, investors, analysts, economists alike, all made the mistake of conflating cyclical issues into structural issues. And one of the reasons for doing this remark was to understand whether some of the issues that are a problem today and have caused equity markets to fall and have caused bond yields to drop to historic lows are something that will be permanent or otherwise. And the key takeaways from this is as we're entering markets at a potentially lower level, I mean, obviously the U.S. has rallied back quite some way, so it's given up some of those potential forward gains, other markets globally you're entering at a lower price point. Now, crucially, we do believe that although this will be a deep recession, it won't be a lengthy one. And as a result, we would argue that a lot of the economic positivity that we had through the last cycle will be renewed in time. And as a result, being able to buy that forward curve of growth in equity markets at a better price point means higher forward returns. The more bearish you are today, the more bullish, perhaps, you should be about long-term returns. For bond markets, however, one thing we are very aware of is that monetary policy at a very easy level is likely to be with us for many, many years to come. 
with starting yields now well below zero in real terms, and indeed in nominal terms in many countries such as Japan and Germany, it means the outlook for the bond market has actually been really pretty damaged. And as a result, one of the biggest challenges we will face in the next three, five, ten years will be recognizing how we build portfolios to capture the gains on offer in equity markets and other alternatives, but still build resilience into our portfolios given that bond market returns are now so challenged. And John, how about the macro outlook? Has that changed as a result of the crisis? Well, for, I mean, for this particular exercise, we haven't updated our macro assumptions, to be clear. And there's a good rationale for that. We've seen such a violent move in markets that it was important to actually think about what's that price move done. But what certainly doing this exercise has done is highlight some areas where we could get some difference in the macro outlook. So let's take the way we think about things first and foremost. We build our view of the macro environment up thinking about how many people have we had have we got working? I, what's our labor population? Do they have the sufficient tools to do their jobs? Do they know how to use them? And have they got a good process? And in that, you've got the three components of productivity, capital deepening, labor skills, and total factor productivity. And then finally, on top of that, we put an assumption around how policy frameworks will work with regard to inflation. When I put it all back together, you know, although this crisis has been deeply hurtful on a human level, it hasn't meaningfully altered our labor market assumptions over the long haul. And we also would argue that in some cases, the presence of fiscal stimulus is likely to offset in capital spending some of the productivity gains which may have been lost due to confidence. So all else equal, our major building blocks to the economy are not much changed from a real growth perspective. The interesting angle comes with fiscal and monetary policy acting in unison. In the last cycle, we heard a lot about austerity. We saw, heard a lot about cutting back fiscal deficits and dealing with debt loads. And that's clearly going to be something we have to tackle in the years to come. But the one thing that will separate the next cycle from the one that preceded it will be the fact that we have fiscal and monetary stimulus operating together. We believe that over the fullness of time, that means scope for a more reflationary environment, greater demand-side stimulus, higher debt levels for certain relative to GDP, but at levels of interest rates, which means that there is some scope that we will have to think about financial repression over the intermediate term, particularly with regard to sovereign bonds. And ultimately, steeper curves could well mean an environment where we get more of a focus back on how those fiscal dollars get spent, with the winners and losers being defined by how well fiscal dollars are deployed towards productive investment as opposed to fixed assets or simple tax cuts. Great insights. So I think we could all use some positivity these days. I'd love to hear you elaborate on what areas we are now seeing more future value. Could you detail those for us? Sure. I mean, you're right about positivity, and this is a really important thing. Now, ultimately, although we are in the throes of a deep crisis, and although we've seen this translate not only to a health crisis, but also a human crisis on multiple levels, we should also recognize that out of bear markets, out of crises, are built the new bull markets and the new expansions. And while we should, I think, be circumspect about you know, some issues today and recognize that we likely have market volatility for a time yet, I think that the point to remember is that when we look forward, we are constantly surprised by the level of ingenuity and innovation 
that we see coming through in times like this. One of the things I think that we've seen from this crisis has been the fact that we've seen a massive acceleration in technology adoption, something that we would argue over the fullness of time should be able to translate to productivity. As I mentioned a moment ago, the fact that we've now got fiscal spending, one of the things we've lacked in many parts of the world was a pickup in productivity, and that is often related to capital investment. And capital investment cycles in the corporate world can often follow on from getting spurred on by government spending. And so ultimately, the notion of crowding out, it doesn't really necessarily follow through in most economies. So as a result, having that spending, that investment, provided it's put to work well, is a reason for positivity. So when we look forward, the other thing we'd argue is that, again, it's that simple thing. If we don't believe that over a long term, potential growth has been impaired, and that we certainly don't, then if you are able to buy that forward curve of growth cheaper today, your returns will be higher tomorrow. And so all else equal, while there are some things to watch for, areas such as international equities, they continue to look as if they could have an opportunity to play catch-up in the next cycle. A more inflationary world, greater fiscal involvement, you know, a focus on areas of technology such as renewable energy, etc., actually lends itself to a broadening out of being able to buy into innovation around the globe. Another area, of course, is emerging markets already coming into this crisis, having been impaired in valuation terms due to the trade dispute that went before. And so now if we look at emerging market equities, for instance, on a price to book of 1.3 to 1.35, depending on how you slice the accounting, that's an entry level which historically has been very compelling. Also areas such as alternatives, hedge funds and private equity especially, in a world with a little bit more differentiation, a world with a bit more volatility, we would argue that the ability for alpha streams to be turned into capture war returns is all else equal higher. And so we would argue that Coming into this crisis, we heard a lot about private equity in particular having cash on the books that was going to dilute returns. That cash on the books now looks as if it is firepower to be deployed in terms of picking up assets in industries which are going to undergo structural change. And yes, there will be turmoil and disruption in some industries. We will see new opportunities emerge. And being able to buy into that, being able to look at how the future will mold the way we work, the way we travel, you know, the way we operate generally, that's going to be something which I think will be hugely exciting as an investment opportunity. So in days like these, while it's very difficult to look at markets and look at the news flow and feel entirely positive, certainly when we look forward and think about the innovation that we're unleashing today, that's something which I think we should hang on to and think about for the longer term. Excellent. Love to hear the positivity. So within alternatives, it looks like U.S. core real estate has also been marked up. And, you know, this crisis has really brought real estate to the forefront. With so many of us working from home, the question is, will we even need offices anymore? And will retailers need as many, if any, locations? So what's your outlook on real estate? Well, well, I can assure you from my own point of view, sat in in my office at home at the moment with my wife and three children, actually, are probably desperate for me to go back to the office. So I'd imagine that the demand for offices is probably still, is not going to go to zero, let's put it that way. But clearly, we're going through a transition, and it's really important to think about this. So I was on a call with Anton Pill, who runs our alternatives business just a couple of weeks ago, and I was struck by one of the points he made, which is some of the impairments that are being seen across real estate are no different, really, from crises of the past. 
But unlike crises of the past, where it's been because of excessive leverage marking down asset values, this is simply recognizing that in the recession there will be a period where there's going to be a lower level of rent collection. But there's already a decent buffer against, for instance, triple B spreads built into a lot of the real estate business. More importantly, the assets themselves are under-leveraged. So if you look at real estate on that simple macro lens, actually there's some resilience there. One of the reasons we've marked up core real estate is reflecting a little bit of a dip in terms of entry points, means that we're effectively pushing forward in some of the returns because we're entering a slightly impaired level to reflect some of the near-term issues. But then I'd actually look at it a little differently because as human beings, we need physical assets. We interact with the world around us. And hitherto, we've been interacting in shopping malls, in theatres, in cinemas, in offices. We may do less of that in the short run. We may do less of it permanently. But for every person who's working from home who doesn't need a seat in an office in Midtown, what they will need is infrastructure. What they'll need is cell phone towers. What they will need is data storage centres. And this will all be remote for them. And also, for every person who's given up on turning up at the shopping mall to buy their goods and is buying it instead remotely, you're relying on logistics hubs, transportation networks. So real estate, the real asset, the things we can touch and feel have not gone away. The mix of them may well be changing. And rather interestingly, I think the gearing that these types of assets have towards the technological revolution and towards innovation is sometimes underappreciated. And it's for that that I think it makes what has sometimes been considered a rather sleepy asset class actually incredibly exciting to look at. So on perhaps the not-so-positive side, you mentioned higher debt level. So let's talk about debt for a minute. You know, with governments and corporations, they'll undoubtedly have higher debt coming out of this. What does this mean for the long term? Yeah. So, you know, it is something. This is the bit that's going to be hard to navigate. But it's not the first time in our history that we've had to deal with debt. And certainly if we look back to the experience in asset markets in the 50s and the 60s, that's something which happened. It's a situation where I think, again, you've got to come back to Simple Finance 101. If you're looking at something which is delivering you a return, which is below the level of nominal growth, then that asset is going to be shrinking its attractiveness over time. And the reality is, is what you will see is those returns eroded away. It's simple mechanics. And that's the world we see. One of the big findings for us from the LTCMA, the Long-Term Capital Market Assumptions remark that we did, we looked across the G4 bond markets, so US dollars, euros, pound sterling, and Japanese yen. And there is no part of any curve with the exception of the very, very short end in the US where we believe the returns will outpace on an average annualized basis our expectations of inflation. And that means everywhere effectively accepting a negative real return in the bond markets. Now, to be clear, bond markets do a job for you. They operate with a negative correlation to the equity market, so they build portfolio resilience. But the interesting thing is they're an insurance product for a portfolio. Effectively, what they do is they provide you a degree of hedging or they offset cash flows. They've got to be used in the way they're designed. If you're using them to match cash flows, they'll still work by and large. If you're using them to insulate a portfolio, 
the negative correlation will still work by and large. But unlike previously, you're now paying for that insurance. Because for many, many years, it's been the one insurance policy that paid you to have it. So the crucial thing when we think about it is that in dealing with this debt load, we are going to see higher leverage on corporations. That possibly means corporations having to think more laterally in terms of how they manage their portfolios. We're used to companies operating with higher levels of leverage, leaner balance sheets, but this is going to put more pressure in terms of can they pick up things like their asset turnover, etc. Can they think about being able to run their supply chains internally more efficiently? At the governmental level, we would argue that the biggest differentiator will be how this borrowing is spent. Because, of course, when we deal with debt to GDP, we can either tap the denominator or the numerator. And in the prior expansion, we mostly tackled the numerator, the debt side of it, by trying to bring it down. Clearly, that time is gone. So what we now need to do, and we need to see done by fiscal authorities, is that the money being spent by governments needs to be put to work in productive assets. It can be done. It's not always successful. The compare and contrast between seeing how the periphery and southern Europe spent the windfall of lower interest rates as they joined the euro back in the early 90s, compared with how Germany reunified and used that investment to build the Mittelstand, the big powerhouse of the German economy, demonstrates that there are two ways of spending fiscal dollars. Spend it the right way, and we would argue that by boosting the denominator, it will be possible to deal with this debt load over time, but not every country is going to be successful in doing this. This is a follow-on. I mean, can you see any interest rates going any lower? Well, I mean, yeah, we have to accept the fact that interest rates themselves, there isn't a zero lower bound. But we would argue quite strongly that we still think it's unlikely that the U.S. will take interest rates into negative territory. And certainly Jay Powell has been quite quick to pour cold water on that idea. I think the reason for that, by and large, is because we've seen the damage that it's done to the plumbing of the banking system within the Eurozone. And some of the issues that have had to be brought in in the places like Japan, Switzerland, etc., where significant situations like tiering have had to be brought in, which effectively blunts the impact of monetary policy transmission. And so, all else equal, we would think that it's more likely with interest rates that where they will fall will be places where there's still a little bit of room, and that would be mostly in the emerging markets, where the disinflationary impulse of the immediate recession that we face gives them a bit of room to do that. That potentially is supported there. But then we would think that monetary policy makers will lean much more into forward guidance. And so certainly our expectation when we come to thinking about the assumptions for the next edition of the LTCMAs will be seeing normalization paths in interest rates pushed out probably some way because we don't believe that we're going to see a time any time particularly soon when central banks are able to raise rates. And their next policy tool may well be the communication of that as opposed to actually moving the rates themselves. To switch gears here a bit, there's an argument that the pandemic adds momentum to the trend of deglobalization. What's your thoughts on this? If, as some have suggested, Western economies become less resilient on Asian supply chains, is this likely to be a long-term inflation driver as really labor and production costs are likely to be higher in this scenario? Well, there's a lot gets talked about deglobalization at the moment, but I'll nail my personal colors to the mast. I'm not a believer in deglobalization. And part of that, it comes from the data. 
you know, if we look at where we went from the you know, late 80s until present day, from the late 80s, early 90s until around about the middle 10s, we saw global trade in nominal terms outstripping nominal GDP on a global level by roughly two to one. And over the 2010s, that declined back to the two growing roughly in parallel with one another. So global trade moving roughly at the same pace. And over the long haul, I see little reason why that would change. We've gained an awful lot, I think, in terms of supply chains from globalization. But what's happened, clearly, is the whole notion of running supply chains on a very, very lean basis and a just-in-time basis, I think, is something which has been challenged by this crisis. And if onshoring production may happen at the margin in certain key industries, it may mean that companies in the near term run slightly fatter inventories but what's more likely to happen, I would argue, is that the reliance on single points of offshore production potentially will be distributed out so that one element in the supply chain does not become pivotal. And that's already started to happen following the trade dispute between China and the U.S. over 2018 and 2019. We already saw a lot of production shifted and distributed much more widely around Southeast Asia and also, within the Eurozone, we've seen some of the German supply chains shift a lot across countries into the east of the bloc. And certainly, seeing that supply chain perhaps distributed more widely across the globe is the more likely outcome. I don't see another big surge in globalization of the goods market, but certainly continuing to grow roughly in line with nominal GDP would seem sensible. Where I do think globalization will start to pick up, however, is in the globalization of services and labor. One of the things that we have to accept is having seen how quickly and smoothly, and it's a surprise to many of us, myself personally included, how quickly many industries have been able to adapt to distributed working in the services industry suggests that the globalization to come will be in the labor sector and in the services industries. And that potentially creates something of a disinflationary pressure at the margin but remember, it's likely to still be dominated by the much greater dominance of fiscal stimulus, which in and of itself is a big driver of reflation. Makes a lot of sense. So as part of the remarked assumptions, you collected perspectives from various JP Morgan experts on their experiences during the past shocks to the economy and markets. It was probably my favorite part of the paper. But can you tell us your perspective on how the current crisis compares? Yeah, so I'm hugely grateful to my colleagues around the business. And I think some of the things which have really struck me, and I do urge the folks listening in on this call to have a read through some of these collected wisdom. At the end of the day, recessions you know, market crises have an element of learning by doing. Everyone is unique, every single one. Everyone has a different flavor to it, but there are certain rhythms, certain cadences which repeat. And I think that one thing that we can identify about this crisis is that it's moved much more quickly, but many elements of it have got shades of what's happened in the past. The rapid injection of liquidity was one of the things, I think, that has really shrunk down the duration of this crisis and has led to this deviation that we see talked about between Wall Street and Main Street. But as I look through it, I think about, you know, I work very closely with Jeff Geller, who's the CIO of the solutions business, and you know, he's been in the market for over 40 years, and he's on record as saying he's never seen anything like it. But there are some other things which I think really strike me. And one of the things that I read, Lee Selman, head of equities in the U.S., 
when I read her comment, and it really struck me, and we pulled it out as a quote, stocks are worth their future cash flows. There's no substitute. It's incredibly important when thinking about the long term. And one of the reasons for being positive at the moment over the longer term is that while we're looking at a period of volatility today, the future levels of growth, the future cash flows, are still reasonably resilient in our views. If we can buy those a little bit more cheaply, then potentially we should be a little bit more optimistic in the longer term. And certainly, as we see that analysts now, by and large, have really marked down aggressively their quarter two earnings expectations, we're getting to a point of thinking about, well, where do we go from here? And the curve is beginning to slope upwards. And then, of course, another person who many of you will know who I've worked with very, very closely, Ted Dimmig, was recollecting on his experiences from the crisis of 2007-2008. And just as we're seeing question marks coming back up about whether we are seeing a resurgence in geopolitical rhetoric between China and the U.S., issues developing certain aspects of uh, relationship that China has with other trading partners such as Australia, he makes the point that there's always more than one thing going on. And this is something which I think is important for people to recognize today. We've been myopically focused on the crisis, but the market is still going to have to come through and calibrate everything from earnings to trade to the U.S. election, to some of the new packages announced within the Eurozone, to oil glut, through to changes in the way OPEC is operating. And all of these things, the market will have to calibrate through time. And that's one of the reasons why today, although I'm optimistic for the future, a little bit more near-term volatility really won't surprise me. But certainly it will give us the opportunity to lean into some of those views that we'd like to as the market goes through its motions in the weeks, months, and quarters to come. Really great points. Thanks, John. So looking into the future, you know, let's say considering a five-year time horizon, would you say that this is a good time to re-risk or is another significant drop expected? Well, I mean, the one thing that you can say with certainty at the moment is that there are fat tails. So there's both a reason to think that there could be more drops and there's reason to think actually, you know what, there are underpriced risks to the top side, a more rapid return to work. You know, rapid easing of the lockdown, potentially a vaccine. We've seen from the price action of recent days that the market's quite mobile in both directions. And so for a long-term investor, that should reinforce the fact that what we should be looking to do is to make sure that we go back to thinking about solving our primary investment objectives. And that will tell you whether it's time to come into the market or not. If you're looking to generate a certain level of return from a certain balance of assets, and you're able to do that today, that goes a long way to answering whether this is the time to invest or not. Second-guessing, day trading effectively from one day to the next over a market level, I think devalues those long-term frameworks that we as investors should be looking to do. Now, above all else, we should be disciplined about how we put that money to work. We are somewhat optimistic because when we look into the longer term, we apply our framework. We think we can buy a balance of nice equity markets. We can buy a balance of alternative assets, real estate, at levels which we feel are more attractive, much closer to their secular return equilibrium over the longer run. And for us, that means that it does look as an interesting time to be coming in. But we also recognize volatility today is higher. The VIX is around about the 30 level. Typically, for the second half of the expansion, the VIX was averaging below 20. So this is a higher volatility time, and that should tell us two things. Number one, 
for each unit of return we want to buy, we are committing more risk budget. So sizing our positions appropriately is key. And number two, if we are trying to add on an element of timing, a more volatile market may gift us an opportunity to enter. But if that is the way one is choosing to approach entering the market, it's very clear to know what your objective is, what your entry points would be, and be sure to execute on them once the market gives you that opportunity. But by and large, we still think that the usual rules of investing apply, which is think about your portfolio objectives, think about diversification. If your return objectives can be met, then putting the money to work generally would be the right thing to do. Great to hear and great reminders. Well, John, I have one more question for you. How about oil? What is our outlook for oil companies and the oil price? Well, you know, I think it's an interesting one all around. I think what we've been demonstrating is, is the fragility of oil and the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, the supply response is sometimes not as quick as it needs to be. I think on the good news side of things, you know, things like places like China where we're beginning to see the country emerge from lockdown, you know, a lot of manufacturing data starting to pick back up again. Actually, oil demand has picked up quite some way. It's getting close to its pre-crisis levels. But, of course, across a lot of the OECD nations, which are still only just emerging from lockdown, that oil demand is still going to be blunted. And in particular, with air travel having been pushed down, that, again, is a short-term overhang for demand for oil. Now, over the intermediate term, I mean, we do think we'll see something of a supply response. Certainly, it's interesting to note that conventional oil tends to have roughly a five-year investment cycle. And if you look back, and remember 2015, we saw a bit of a hit to oil at that time as well. So some of the forward supply of oil may be a little bit more impaired in our view. And certainly when we look at the impact on the shale industry, again, this is suggesting that a bit more supply discipline is going to be necessary. That is coming through from OPEC. But it doesn't take away from the fact that we think over the longer term, demand for oil will be gradually impaired. We think that some of the fiscal dollars that are being spent today, particularly in places like Japan and the Eurozone, which are not energy independent and nor are ever likely to be in conventional or fossil fuel terms, we would argue that the impetus there to think about energy efficiency, clean energy, renewables, etc., is going to be something which is going to be very much aligned to the fiscal spending which we think those countries will do. And that potentially has the capacity to gradually weigh on energy demand over the longer term. So for the time being, we're certainly seeing some recovery in TI and some recovery in Brent as we're seeing these supply discipline come in. We're seeing, obviously, the summer coming up on us, which is typically a bit of a boost for demand up what with uh, you know, demand through air conditioning and gradual uplift in travel. But we would certainly not expect to see anything much above the kind of 40 to $50 per barrel kind of level being breached unless we saw significant supply disruption. But one of the reasons why we think that we will be aiming in towards that level is that it's around that level that you have the kind of break-even for many of the OPEC nations. And that's a really important point to watch. So while we can get volatility over the short run, certainly the impetus to allow oil to be at a depressed level for a prolonged period is just not there for OPEC nations. So oil near term probably has some level of recovery and some level of support as we see demand coming back in longer term. Don't underestimate the importance of fiscal spending and that renewability agenda in parts of the world like Asia and like Europe and the impact that that could have on oil demand over a 10-year horizon. Thanks, John. We hope today's call was impactful for you and thank you all for your partnership. 
If you need any additional information on anything that was discussed, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan Client Advisor. We're all here to help. So again, thank you all for participating today. And thank you, John. Stay well, everyone. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global, slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities, in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia-Pacific, APAC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. Number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, 
Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau. Financial Instruments Firm. Number 330. In Australia. To wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001. Commonwealth. By J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Australia. Limited. ABN 55143832080. AFSL 376919. Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.